Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, who's at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. Most of the talk there today, Tuesday, is about Boris Johnson's speech. And I hope you will join me in urging our friends in government to deliver what the people voted for. To back Theresa May in the best way possible by softly and quietly and sensibly supporting her original plan. The former Foreign Secretary has been engaging in open warfare with Prime Minister Theresa May over her plan to keep Britain closely aligned to the EU after Brexit. How was he received by the party faithful today? That's one of the questions I'll be asking Dennis shortly. But first this week, it's to the story that has been dominating US politics for the past week or more and has at least several more days to run. And that's the controversy surrounding the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Confirmation of his appointment, which would tilt the court in a conservative direction for perhaps many years to come, seemed assured until last Thursday, when the Senate Judiciary Committee heard testimony from Dr Christine Blasey Ford, a California-based university professor. With what degree of certainty do you believe Brett Kavanaugh assaulted you? 100%. 100%. Kavanaugh's denial of Blasey Ford's allegation, given to the same committee hours later, was emphatic. This confirmation process has become a national disgrace. There's been a frenzy on the left to come up with something, anything, to block my confirmation. Kavanaugh's confirmation has now been put on hold while the FBI carries out a week-long investigation into the allegations made by Blasey Ford and others about his past conduct. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, will have the latest for us on that story, but I'm going to talk first with Ruan McCormick, who joins me in studio. Ruan, you bring several perspectives to this story that I wanted to explore with you today. You're our in-house foreign affairs specialist, but you were previously legal affairs editor, and indeed many listeners will know you as the author of the Supreme Court, the only definitive account of the workings of the Irish Supreme Court. So, Ruan, with your legal affairs background in mind, uh, it goes without saying that the Supreme Court in any Western democracy plays a huge role in shaping law and determining how law is interpreted. But what is it about the US Supreme Court in particular that makes it so important? Let's leave aside for a moment the hyper-partisan moment we're living in. At any time, under any circumstances, the US Supreme Court is extremely powerful. And as a result, any appointment to it is very significant. The reason is that the US Constitution is virtually unamendable. In Ireland, it's relatively straightforward to change the Constitution. All you need is a proposal from Parliament and a majority of the people who turn out to vote on a given day to effect a change. And that has happened several times. Often it has happened in direct response to a decision taken by the Irish Supreme Court, where the people have said, we disagree with what the Supreme Court is saying, and therefore we're going to to change the Constitution. In the US, that can't happen, or at least it's much more difficult. You need uh, two-thirds for a, a referendum amendment, sorry, for a constitutional amendment to be approved. You need uh, two-thirds of both houses of Congress, and f- you then need it to be ratified by three-quarters of states. So at the best of times, it's really difficult to do. At a time like this, when US politics and society are divided and polarised as they are, it's virtually impossible. And so that means that the US Supreme Court has the final word. The Irish Supreme Court or the highest courts in several other countries uh, that we know well don't. And so the US Supreme Court has nine members. In the last couple of decades, as US society and politics have become more polarised and more divided, so has the US Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has, has begun to be seen in the last three or four decades as an extension of partisan political political battle. And so any appointment to the court is a significant moment in US national life. 
that scenario you've outlined for it, it explains, for example, why the issue of gun rights is so difficult to solve in the United States, why it's such an intractable issue because the right to bear arms, there's an amendment there to, to support that right. That's right. I mean, I think what happened was the conservative movement in particular, um, several decades ago, realised that this was happening and um, began programmatically to um, view the US Supreme Court as an arm of the culture wars. And so if the US Supreme Court was the the place where these big social and cultural issues would be decided, so gun rights, capital punishment, uh, abortion, regulation, those sorts of questions, if they were to be ultimately decided by the judges of the Supreme Court, then you really had to have your guy or your woman on that court. And so what they did was they they began to campaign, they began to fundraise, they began to identify potential candidates from lower courts who might be um, who might be appointable. And you see, for example, Donald Trump in his campaign in 2016, he produced a list compiled by the Federalist Society, a right-wing group, with a list of potential candidates who he said he would uh, choose from if uh, any vacancies opened up on the court. Neil Gorsuch, his first appointee, came from that list and so did uh, Brett Kavanaugh, his uh, his current nominee. Um, the Supreme Court in the US has been divided for a long time. The reason it's especially significant now is that for a long time you had a swing vote. It was Sandra Day O'Connor for a long time under the Rehnquist um, court. It was Anthony um, Kennedy uh, more recently. Kennedy's retirement means that the ninth seat is open. Currently, at eight members, there's a 4-4 division of liberals and conservatives on the court. This is on these big issues, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, gun rights, capital punishment, and so on. If Brett Kavanaugh joins the court, it entrenches the conservative majority. There's a built-in 5-4 majority on the court. Brett Kavanaugh is also relatively young. He's 53, so it's not inconceivable that he'd be on the court for another 30 years, and he would have a huge impact on US political and public life. The point about Kennedy is that he was nominally a conservative, but his decisions could really go either way. So the, the, there was that balance maintained between the, the, the liberal and conservative elements. That's right. He was a Republican and he was a Republican appointee and he was a middle-of-the-road conservative on a lot of issues, on a lot of economic issues, on a lot of regulatory issues. But he was the swing vote on some of these important social questions, notably abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, and so his vote wasn't predictable in the way that the vote of a Clarence Thomas or a Samuel Alito or, or, or others were. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is a much more predictably doctrinaire conservative judge. He's been sitting on the uh, DC circuit for quite a number of years where he, when you look at what he's been doing, he emerges as a, a sort of a standard conservative judge very much in the mould of a Clarence Thomas or a John Roberts and not in the mould of a Sandra Day O'Connor or, a, or a, an Anthony Kennedy and very few people, although back at the time of Kennedy's appointment, very few people expected him to be that, that swing vote. Less, I think, was known of judges. The, um, the confirmation hearings tended not to stray into these types of areas. Brett Kavanaugh has also, I think, been quite smart in the way he has played this through his career in that you can see that he's quite a middle-of-the-road conservative on most issues. He doesn't like regulation, particularly environmental regulation. He's much as you would expect on a lot of those um, issues, but on abortion, he hasn't... He's quite artfully dodged taking a firm and clear position. And in theory, at least, that made his 
appointment easier to achieve because, you know, for can for Republicans like Susan Collins from Maine, who is pro-choice, there's no paper trail there that she can point to as a reason not to vote for Kavanaugh. At the same time, he appeared on this Federalist Society list, so we can safely assume at least that the Federalist Society believes that he would um, vote to overturn Roe and Wade, the landmark abortion decision, if the right case came up. And I think one of the things that struck people about his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee last Thursday was just how partisan his opening comments were. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. Ruan, given what we've already discussed about the, the makeup of the court and the fact that there is this 4-4 split, we, we understand and expect there is some level of politi- political affiliation by the justices on the Supreme Court. But with that in mind, were Kavanaugh's comments to the committee, were they extreme or out of line, beyond the norm? I think there were a lot of things wrong with Brett Kavanaugh's testimony uh, before the committee last week. He was rude, he was rambling, he was self-pitying, and all of these things have been identified by his critics. He was certainly injudicious, and that has raised a new line of attack for Democrats seeking to block his nomination. But as you say, or as you imply, he was certainly more partisan than the norm. Um, For months, the Democrats have been trying to say that this man, this nominee, is a, a political, a Republican political operative. That was a relatively difficult case to make for two reasons. Firstly, Brett Kavanaugh has impeccable academic and judicial uh, credentials. Secondly, in his original um, appearance before the Senate Judiciary Committee, he was poised, he was measured, um, he was certainly not partisan, and he was at pains to stress his bipartisan um, credentials. Um, It's a much easier argument to make now because what he did was a full-on partisan attack on Democrats. he referred to um, he referred to Bill Clinton and suggested that the Democrats might be seeking to exact vengeance for his involvement in the Ken Starr investigation leading to Bill Clinton's impeachment in the 90s. He mentioned Democratic um, disquiet and unease and anger over the um, 2016 um, presidential election. And this is new. So even if you look back at Clarence Thomas and his... Um, nomination hearings um, back in the early 1990s. People may remember that uh, Clarence Thomas was nominated by George H.W. Bush and as his nomination was making its way through the Senate, um, a former staff member of his, Anita Hill, made serious allegations of sexual misconduct against him. He employed much the same tactic as Kavanaugh in his second appearance. He went for full-out attack. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. It is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves. And it is a message. He took on the committee and he emerged quite well from it in that strictly narrow political sense. And Kavanaugh took the same approach. The difference was that it was a partisan attack. The reason this is a problem is that it becomes much more difficult for Kavanaugh ever again to be seen as an impartial or an objective judge. And so every time, presuming Kavanaugh does end up on the US Supreme Court, every time... um, a political, a party political um, question comes up for deliberation. He will 
I think quite justifiably be seen as a political operative acting as a judge. One of the notable things they're doing is, is Thomas's tone, how controlled it is, in stark contrast to that of Kavanaugh. And many people are questioning Kavanaugh's temperament now. And you can see, I think that's true, and you can see in the last couple of days through the remarks of Chuck Schumer and others that this is a new attack line the Democrats have latched onto. In other words, regardless of what the FBI investigation turns up, if it turns up anything um, over the coming days, they will still have this attack line, which is that uh, Brett Kavanaugh has revealed himself not to have the temperament of a judge. Um, and given that he could serve on this court for a very long time, that's a, that's a big problem. And they're already using this argument even before we see what the FBI uh, comes up with. There are another couple of differences. You know, if you think, if you compare what went on the last week in the Senate committee with what went on in the early 1990s, Firstly, there were no there were no women on the uh, on the committee when Anita Hill gave her evidence. There are still no Republican women, but there were four um, Democrat women this time. Um, it's also significant, I think, to remember what happened immediately after that. Yes, Clarence Thomas got onto the U.S. Supreme Court, where I think he's emerged as a, a, a not particularly effective judge. He says very little. He tends not to write very many original opinions. He tends to cleave very closely to the, to the conservative middle ground and not to, not, to, um, not to offer his own view very often. So he got onto the court. But what also happened was the, that you had a record number of women returned to Congress in elections that took place shortly after that. And that's, I think, regardless of what happens over the uh, nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. I think that's where the hope, the Democrats' hope lies, in that they hope that the palpable anger you sense among many Americans, many American women in particular, will rebound to their benefit. And I'm speaking purely in that narrow political sense, that it'll rebound to their benefit um, in the midterms in a couple of weeks. And you mentioned earlier Kavanaugh's track record as a judge. What kind of decisions will he be involved in if, if this confirmation goes through? I mean, what are the kind of major decisions coming up? There are no big blockbuster cases coming up over the next couple of months, um, but there are cases to do with the separation of powers. There's a case on whether a man with mental illness can be executed. So there will be opportunities over the next couple of months, assuming that Brett, Brett Kavanaugh comes through this. There will be opportunities for the court to show where it stands on some of these big um these these big um, social cultural questions. Um, as I said, we know a certain amount about about Brett Kavanaugh. Um, I think there's one other area. I mentioned regulation. I mentioned what he has or hasn't said on abortion. There's one other area which I think is very interesting about Brett Kavanaugh, and that's his attitude uh, to the presidency and the powers of the presidency. In a case in 2011, the DC court on which he sat voted 2-1 to uphold the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Kavanaugh dissented, and he dissented on a uh, quite a procedural issue. He felt that the case was premature and he, he dissented on that basis. But in his opinion, he wrote something I think is quite extraordinary. He wrote that the president, I quote, may decline to enforce a statute that regulates private individuals when the president deems the statute constitutional, even if a court has held or would hold the statute unconstitutional. This is self-evidently Extraordinary, because of course it's the courts and not the White House that decides whether a statute or a law is, is unconstitutional. Also notable is an article he wrote in 2009 in which he argued that presidents should not only be free from the possibility of indictment while in office, but should also be allowed to avoid questioning by law enforcement officials. You can imagine who likes the sound of that. <laughs> exactly, I was just going to say, I think we can see there why uh, Donald Trump has nominated him. Um, well, of course, well, his confirmation may depend on the outcome of the FBI investigation into allegations against him. And Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, will have the latest on that. So uh, let's give her a call. Hi, Suzanne. It's Chris here. Hi, hi. 
Suzanne, I have everyone here with me, and we've been discussing the importance of the Supreme Court and the distinctive role it plays in the, in the life of the United States and kind of how it differs from Supreme Courts in, in, in other countries. Now, Brett Kavanaugh's appointment to that court may hinge on the appointment of this FBI investigation that's running this week into allegations of misconduct against him. There's been some wrangling over the past couple of days about the scope of the investigation and how many people should be interviewed and so on. What's the latest on that? How wide is the FBI casting its net, do we know? Yeah, after everything that happened last week and that hugely acrimonious and divisive hearing last Thursday, I think the focus now is on uh, the details of this FBI investigation. Uh, the White House announced on Friday night that it was um, initiate asking the FBI to open a background investigation into uh, their nominee. Um, really under pressure from Republican Senate M Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had no choice because Jeff Flake, one of the, the casting votes, if you like, uh, had demanded that a, a limited investigation be opened into Brett Kavanaugh before he endorses him. Um, so now focus has turned to what kind of investigation this will be. Um, and Democrats have pushed back on reports that it is limited. Uh, so on Monday, the White House confirmed that it had instructed the FBI to, in, to widen the investigation to some extent to whatever it needs to do uh, to, to get to, to do its inquiries. Um, but it's still very unclear what will that, that will entail. We seem to, um, there are suggestions now that four of the key witnesses uh, who are were involved in this, um, in particular in this incident at the high school that Christine Blasey Ford has described and alleges that, that in that place she was a victim of sexual assault. They have already been interviewed by the FBI, it seems. Um, and this includes Mark Judge, a friend of Mr. Kavanaugh, who Blasey Ford accuses uh, of witnessing the, the attempted rape by Brett Kavanaugh, according to her uh, recollection of, of the events of that day. Um, so there's a sense that now the FBI, there were suggestions that it could actually finish its investigation earlier than people thought, and that would allow the Senate to move forward with a vote even earlier, midweek this week. Now, Democrats have put forward a list of about two dozen people that they believe should be interviewed by the FBI, but it does not look like it's going to stray too much uh, into that territory uh, members of the Trump administration said over the weekend that it should not be a fishing expedition. But at the same time, Donald Trump at a press conference here on Monday said that, you know, the FBI need to do what they need to do, essentially, um, and that he was uh, in favor of a comprehensive investigation. But the key issue is that he said it needs to be finished by Friday. So I think time is of the essence, really, in terms of the Republican side. They're going to get this finished by Friday uh, in any event. And now, Suzanne, we know three women that we know about have made allegations against Kavanaugh. Christine Blasey Ford, you just, you just mentioned there. Um, another woman, Deborah Ramirez, claims that when they were in college together that he exposed himself to her at a drunken party. And there's a third accuser, Julie Swetnick, who says she observed him at parties where women were verbally abused and, and even gang raped. Do we know, are all of those allegations being investigated? We know that the allegations by Deborah Ramirez is being, uh, they are being investigated. Um, she has already been interviewed. However, Democrats believe that witnesses that she alleges were, were at that specific party, they want those people to be interviewed, but it does not look at this point like they will be interviewed about that incident. In, in terms of the third woman, Judy Swetnick, it still has not been clarified if she will be interviewed or not, but it looks like she may well be. Um, and it looks like some of these wavering Republicans, like Susan Collins of Maine, will demand this. But again, anyone tangential to that, um, anyone who may have been 
wit- witness these events that Judy Swetnick alleges happened at these parties, it looks like they may not necessarily uh, be interviewed. So then we have the situation where, you know, it's her word against his and, and, the, and other corroborating witnesses potentially will not be included in, in this inquiry. Do, do the Democrats expect or hope that the FBI will come forward with some kind of definitive conclusions here? Because I know one of the points made at the Senate Judiciary Committee last week by the Republicans were, one of, one of the points made was that these kind of inquiries, all the FBI can do is come up with a he said, she said kind of report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the issue. And I think there's a real sense here over the last 48 hours or so that Democrats might be might be losing the battle on this uh, for the reasons you just described. You're right in that I think what Democrats were going to see in the next few days is that they're they're focusing less on the he said she said of whether an assault took place, but rather on his behaviour, Brett Kavanaugh's behaviour at that hearing. Um, there's been a lot of commentary on from critics of, of Kavanaugh and of Trump that you know his behaviour, his 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 temperament his tone at that hearing is not kind of becoming, if you like, uh, for a Supreme Court justice. Um, Suggestions as well that he may have misled uh, the Senate under oath about his drinking habits, for example. Um, So this may be be what uh, Democrats try to highlight. And significantly, Jeff Flake, the senator, the Republican senator, insisted on this investigation, did say on Monday, and I think this is very significant, that he was concerned with some aspects of Brett Kavanaugh's testimony. In particular, he said, his partisan references. And this is where Brett Kavanaugh could be straying into very difficult territory. In particular, during his testimony, he said that he believed that he was a victim of a calculated political hit fueled by, he said, pent-up anger at President Trump and the 2016 election. He said it could be revenge on behalf of the Clintons. He talked about millions of dollars of money from outside left-wing opposition groups. So he is in difficult territory here because any suggestion that the Supreme Court nominee is partisan in any in any way, um, it's hugely problematic for his nomination because obviously there the question becomes: Can this person objectively, independently uh, judge issues that come before him that may have political dynamics? For example, there are lots of gerrymandering cases uh, coming towards coming uh, before the court. We we all remember uh, the Al Gore uh, George W. Bush uh, vote. Um, when the Supreme Court had to had to weigh in there, so I think that could be a, an angle that that emerges in the next few days because it does seem, and it, it's hard to tell that at the moment, in one sense, there doesn't seem to be any further information going to come out of this FBI investigation that has been opened. So this is essentially a new line of attack by Democrats. We're almost moving away from the question of whether he did or didn't commit any of these assaults mm. or carry out any of these acts, but it's, it's his actual character now that's um, yeah, and, at issue. And, and I mean, that's, that's the crucial thing to remember here. This is not a criminal trial, and Thursday was not a criminal trial. In a sense, and, and I know people might find this uncomfortable, it is not about whether he did it or not. The Senate is trying to judge whether this man is suitable to go on the Supreme Court. They have the power... Uh, you know, the 100 members of the U.S. Senate do have that power, for good or for bad, to judge if this person is suitable uh, to, to sit on uh, on the highest courts of the land. So that's what at issue here. So if there's a sense he, A, misrepresented himself under oath, and B, was partisan in any way, that has got serious implications for his nom- nomination. Now, that, that, that first point I mentioned there, um, the fact that he may have re- misrepresented himself, I think... That was probably a negative from 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 his point of view. This pr- presentation of a kind of sanitized image of him, you know, that he didn't drink that much, you know, that he was going to the gym and and, and a student that has now been, um, 
you know, that has been overturned by by not only his classmates, but he himself in, in Thursday's testimony saying he liked beer. And even um, President Trump, it was quite interesting, in his press conference on Monday, uh, did say he was surprised that Brett Kavanaugh had mentioned the word beer so much. So even Donald Trump, it's been said, is uncomfortable about this issue over the drinking. Um, Suzanne, you were in Texas at the weekend working on a, on a different story. Did you get any sense there of, of what rank-and-file Republicans made of last Thursday's hearing? I think it's very split. Um, I spoke to I spoke to one woman in, in rural Texas, essentially, maybe around 60, and she's a grandmother, and she um, she's a Republican generally, like a lot of people in Texas, but she, she really... Um, had a huge issue with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. She absolutely said she believed Christine Blasey Ford, and it really tied in, she said, to her sense of alienation from from Donald Trump as a candidate. You know, so this this is the issue. I think it's not so much Republican voters. I think it, it polls are showing in the early days since this uh, hearing on Thursday that it's falling down on gender lines, uh, that more women are believing Christine Blasey Ford and more men are believing. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And I think that is, is very telling because on Friday it was quite significant. Donald Trump, of course, after the testimony came out swinging on Twitter, he said that's ex- Judge Kavanaugh showed exactly shown exactly how why I nominated him. He called his testimony powerful, honest, riveting. And then the next day in the Oval Office, there was a completely different tone from Donald Trump. I thought her testimony was very compelling and she looks like a very fine woman to me. Christine Blasey Ford was, was credible. She was a fine woman, etc., etc. I mean, the reason that must have happened was because his aides are saying, look, we are in trouble with women voters. And that, you know, Donald Trump and other Republicans like Lindsey Graham can go out and, you know, fuel this huge anger and the support uh, for someone like Brett Kavanaugh. But they are likely to lose a lot of women, female support, if that's the case. What are the political stakes here, Suzanne? We're heading into midterm elections early next month. What are the potential ramifications for Donald Trump and the Republican Party of not getting this nomination through? Yes, yeah, huge. Number one, I think, is the female vote. I think it's really now, Me Too has really now come into the political framework in a huge way. And how politicians speak about women and their accusations of sexual assault is is, is emerging as a dynamic in this midterm elections. Even someone, just to digress slightly, like Joe Biden, who's weighing a bid for presidential election, his role, he was the chairman of the committee during the Anisha Hill controversy. That's now becoming an issue, a serious issue for him, as he considers whether to run or not. So number one is the gender issue, but number two, obviously, is the fact that they may not get a a second Supreme Court nominee um, on the court under Donald Trump. This, I mean, this is the one reason why a lot of Republican voters who were uncomfortable with Donald Trump at the beginning um, voted for him, was because of the promise of putting judges in, in lower courts and also um, on the Supreme Court. So if that's not to happen, uh, that would be a huge blow for Republicans. Um, but it may also be a motivating factor to get out and vote uh, for Republicans. Uh, but the House has already broken for the midterm elections here. The Senate is still in session, but they are going to be wanting to get this vote through uh, as early as this weekend, maybe a procedural vote on Saturday or Sunday, and then a, uh, a full vote to the Senate early next week. OK, Suzanne, well, we'll be watching out for that Senate vote whenever it happens. Thanks a lot for that. Thanks again to Ruan McCormick and Suzanne Lynch. Now it's to the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham and I'm joined from there by Dennis Staunton. Dennis, there was no doubt about the headline act there today. That was Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary and and many Brexiteers hope, the next leader of the Conservative Party. I, I was watching his arrival at the conference on a television news channel and he arrived in the middle of a scrum of 
I presume media people and people who look like handlers and so on, but it had all the appearances of a heavyweight boxer arriving at the ring for a world title fight. Did, did he deliver any knockout blows to Theresa May? Well, I'm not sure he did, but it was, that was very much the atmosphere. And it was uh, it was a hall. They had to add an extra tier, uh, open up an extra tier in this hall. So it was uh, it had, there were 1,500 people there, people queuing for three hours uh, to get in. And so the expectation was enormous. And he did come in and he uh, he gave a good uh, a good show. He's uh, he tells some good jokes. He uh, you know he has a good way with the audience. He's a good uh, funny speaker, and he knows exactly how to get the conservative party going with attacks on Jeremy Corbyn. And interestingly enough, he started off talking about the domestic policy agenda, talking about housing and basically saying that the way to solve the housing crisis and that you had to do it was to uh, you know, find ways of, uh, of uh, encouraging and enabling young people to buy their own homes rather than trying to build social state-owned uh, housing and all of this. So he kind of you know, he fired them up in this sort of way, and then he got on to Brexit. And when he got on to Brexit, he uh, threw out a few lines, uh, one of which uh, you know, it sort of culminated in simply saying, Chuck Checkers. There is time. This is the moment to chuck checkers. And they all applauded. And then on a, uh, you know, his probably his biggest line, and uh, which got a kind of an immediate uh, and sustained ovation, was when he took a dig at Michael Gove, who uh, his former comrade in the Vote Leave campaign, uh, who has been arguing that actually they should just take whatever deal is available and then try to fix uh, fix it later to have a better Brexit in the future. Do not believe that we can somehow get it wrong now. Bodge it now and fix it later. Get out properly. That is a total fantasy. So all in all, it was, uh, you know, it, it was a speech that got the audience excited and uh, it was exactly what they had come to see. It sort of fizzled out towards the end so that it probably, uh, you know, certainly the journalists who were there, I think most of it just felt that it had fallen a bit flat towards the end. But still, the people who were there, they did like it. But in a way, if you looked at the audience, it told you exactly the problem that Boris has, which is that he's hugely hugely popular with conservative activists. And remember, everybody in there, this is within the secure area of the of the conference. So everybody who was at that, all 1,500 were conservative party delegates. They weren't just random people, uh, you know, off the street. And so he, they love him. But if you looked down at the front where all the MPs were, there were fewer than 20 of them, I would say. And it was very much the hardcore Brexiteers. David Davis was there, Owen Patterson, John Redwood, all of the old guard of uh, of hardcore Brexiteers. And the big problem that Boris Johnson has is that if there is a leadership contest, the parliamentary party produces two candidates, and those two candidates uh, are voted on by the whole uh, membership of the Conservative Party. And the big question is, can Boris Johnson get himself onto the ballot uh, you know, that, that is decided by the MPs? And on the basis of the showing that was there today, and on the basis also of the muttering against Boris Johnson that you've been hearing from MPs over the last few days, that I think has to be in doubt. I mean, there had been some talk before the conference that some people thought he'd gone too far with his, with his attacks on Theresa May. Um, but do you think that kind of resentment is largely confined to the parliamentary party and he, he retains his popularity among the membership at large? I think he does. And I think part of it is that he's just, he's an exciting politician. He's somebody that when he comes into a room, people want to look at him and they want to hear what he's going to say. They want to know what he's going to do next. He has got a problem, though, in his criticism of Theresa May because 
Really, once he said, chuck checkers and uh, get rid of the backstop, which he described as a constitutional abomination. Uh, once he said that, he didn't really have anything much to say about what the alternative was for Brexit, you know, what they should do instead. And so that's, uh, you know, that's also a bit of a problem. And even on the domestic policy agenda, uh, where he, uh, you know, he took another dig at, uh, at Mrs. May, where he said that uh, they should bring back uh, stop and search. Uh, of uh, of suspects by the police on the street, which is uh, something that she abolished as Home Secretary because it tended to be dis- to discriminate against people from ethnic minorities. So, and that again also got a huge cheer. So, I think for the activists, they feel as if they'd love to have um, more red meat, like Boris provides, and they feel as if uh, as if she's a bit of a bore, really, and that uh, she's kind of miserable, and they don't like her version of Brexit because it involves compromises and uh, and he just present, presents a much simpler version of it coloured in primary colours. It sounds so, Dennis, like you think he fell a little bit short of what was required if he was to deliver, deliver a speech that, you know, made him sound and look like a future leader. I think so, because I think part of the problem is that he didn't really de- deliver a story. He didn't deliver a, a policy intervention. And so it was all built up, uh, you know, that uh, people describing his uh, arrival at Birmingham New Street Station as being like Lenin arriving at the Finland Station uh, in St. Petersburg, that, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, this whole thing was built up as being such a major event. And yet, in the end, uh, if you were to say, what did Boris say? He, uh, he said more or less what we expected him to say, but he didn't actually uh, present uh, the Conservatives or the country with a really solid new policy initiative. And I think to really, uh, you know, to move uh, his campaign further uh, towards becoming prime minister, I th- think he needed to do that. So uh, so he pleased the people in the whole, but uh, I think uh, he didn't, he fell a little bit short of what he needed. Now, many dentists expect this to be Theresa May's last conference as party leader. I know she's not saying that, but you made an observation in your, your latest piece in the Irish Times that, those hoping to succeed or are engaged in a beauty contest, but it's a beauty contest with a difference. Yes, it's a beauty contest where all of the contestants are trying to show how ugly they can get. And so you had Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, uh, who was uh, on Sunday, he kind of leapt up onto the catwalk of this pageant and he compares the European Union to the Soviet Union and suggested that uh, the nations in the European Union were captive nations. And this caused an enormous amount of offence. Uh, but of course, the purpose of it was that Jeremy Hunt, who campaigned to remain in the European Union, he would like to be prime minister and he needs to burnish his uh, Brexiteer credentials. And since he can't really criticise the policy, all he can do is to do it rhetorically. So you had that. You had uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg making offensive uh, remarks about an African country. And, of course, Boris Johnson, uh, you know, can can do it like nobody else. So so what they're, what they're all doing is trying to just show how tough and nasty and, frankly, ugly they can get. And that seems to be the way this particular beauty pageant works. Now, Theresa May will deliver her conference address tomorrow, Wednesday. I suppose the one thing we can be sure of is that it can't possibly go as badly as last year's. So you say, 
and uh, let's hope that's true for her sake. And certainly last year, everything did go wrong that could go wrong. One of the things that probably won't go wrong is that uh, apparently what happened uh, last time uh, was that, you know, the, uh, if you remember one of the many things that went wrong, she lost her voice, somebody uh, prankster handed her a P45 on the stage, and then the letters uh, of the Conservative Party, the slogan on the wall behind her started to fall off. And apparently one of the reasons that the letters started to fall off was because as she was coughing more and more, then her henchmen and the audience were trying to get everybody up and clap and do standing ovations. And they got up so often and did so many standing ovations that the vibrations knocked these letters off the wall. Well, this time what they're doing apparently is they're going to project the image onto the wall. So at least that one is probably one that won't actually go wrong unless of course the projector fails or something <laughs> does a dog bark in there somewhere is there um, <laughs> there is a yeah I'm surrounded by uh, men with guns and dogs yeah. <laughs> and, and so Dennis to wrap the discussion the Tories as ever are they're as divided as ever on Europe and, and particularly on Brexit who do you think has come out on top this week has, has either side had the better of it this week I think so far that uh, Theresa May has probably probably held it together uh, it's as if you're at two different conferences because uh, in the main arena, on the main stage, all of the speeches, they're mostly by cabinet ministers, they're carefully vetted and they're all totally on message and they're all backing checkers and backing Theresa May. And then you go into the fringe meetings and you just have Brexiteers seething with rage about her and uh, then on, in some of them, uh, of the fringe meetings, you actually have other conservatives, pro-European conservatives calling for a second referendum on Brexit. But I think that, uh, you know, as we speak now and, you know, there's still one day to go, uh, that I think she has uh, it's gone better for her than it might have and I think also she will be pleased that Boris Johnson's intervention I think is probably not going to get rave reviews I think it'll uh, you know it, it will have pleased his fans but I think it's not going to be uh, it's not going to have been you know such a huge disaster for her and that was a big threat to her that she really thought this was a conference that was going to be all about Boris Johnson and I think in the end it won't be Okay, well, I'm glad she held it together because, Dennis, I just about held it together when you were recapping on the (laughs) events of last year's conference. As ever, a pleasure. Thanks for that. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.